can I just ask you a very quick question? Uh, if I was going to give you a cup of coffee now, would you like it to be hot, lukewarm, or ice cold? I'd like it hot. I'd like it hot. Ice cold. Do you like it hot, lukewarm, or cold? I like it hot. I would like it hot. I've got, got a question for you, Miss Monroe. Hot, lukewarm, or ice cold? Ice cold. Hot. Ice cold. Hot. hot. Very hot. Cold. Mostly I like it really hot. Cold. You like cold coffee? <laughs> I think the police might have been called. Hot. Hot. Cold coffee! Thank you very much. Cold. Ice cold, baby. Hot. Hot! Woo! You asked a guy didn't drink coffee. <laughs> so this, this question... Oh, ice, ice cold, no. I think he likes it hot. Hot. You like it hot, so not so much lukewarm. No. So if I was going to give you a, a cup of lukewarm coffee, would you be disappointed? Yes. You don't like lukewarm coffee? No. No. Lukewarm coffee. I've got a quick, quick question. Dad, do you like your coffee boiling hot, lukewarm, or cold? Okay, he said hot. Well, there you have it. You saw for yourself. A lot of people like hot coffee, and a lot of people like cold coffee. It's weird that no one likes lukewarm coffee, isn't it? How many of you like your coffee hot? How many of you like your coffee cold? How many of you don't like coffee? That's me. But I tell you what, I like tea, and I can drink hot tea, and I can drink cold tea, but don't give me a cup of hot tea that has gone lukewarm, because I'm likely to do what? Spit it out. How many of you have heard that verse before? From Revelation, I would rather that you be hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You might say, well, that's sort of bold. That's straightforward. That's a little nasty. That's a little tough. Guess who said that? Jesus Christ said that. Today we finish up the last letter in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation in a series we've called On the Brink. These are truly some of the last words of Jesus Christ. Now, last two weeks ago, we talked about the church at Philadelphia. And uh, then last week, we looked at the latter part of that church at Philadelphia, talking about Christ's second coming. And the true last, last words of Jesus, as recorded in the book of Revelation, are, Behold, I come quickly, I come soon. And he listed three times in Revelation 22. We have been in these weeks discussing, reflecting, opening ourselves up to the words of Jesus Christ himself. The last words. The last church. Letter he wrote was pretty straight on. The church at Laodicea is what we're going to look at today. Now, it's interesting. I mentioned to uh, one of my sons Yesterday, he said, well, Dad, what are you speaking on tomorrow? And I said, I'm speaking on the church at Laodicea. And he sort of knew what that was about. And he said, oh, no, we're going to get beat up. And I thought to myself, no, it's not for me to beat any of us up. But we do need to listen carefully to the words of Jesus 
not just in a nice church setting, nice message, and then we all clean it up and we go out to eat. I mean, we really need to pull up a chair. We need to pull up a chair and sit before Jesus Christ individually and as a church and say, Lord, what are you saying to me? Now, you may be a longtime follower of Jesus, and so you're always eager to hear the words of Jesus and put them into practice. Maybe you're a first-time seeker in your life trying to discover God and uh, what maybe Jesus Christ has for you. Maybe you're sort of waffling back and forth in your following of Jesus. Whatever place you find yourself at in life, it's valuable to hear directly the words of Jesus and then to see what he wants you to do in response to them because you cannot go wrong in endearing yourself to what Christ wants you to do. Do you know that Jesus Christ created you? He made you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus made you. And Jesus has a plan for your life. A plan to prosper you, not to harm you. Scriptures teach us. But we, like Sheep have gone astray, scriptures say, and we wander here and there, and we can wander from week to week, but it's always good to come back to the voice of the shepherd, to the words of Jesus, and open our hearts to him. And so as we look at this last letter to the churches in Revelation, the Jesus Christ who spoke the words to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, and then had John take those words to these churches via parchment, Those are valuable words for us to be endeared towards. So it's not like, hey, you're going to get beat up today. You're going to be encouraged today because the one who created you loves you and he has a plan for your life. So the church in Laodicea, oops, is my little thing working or not? You're going to have to walk me through. I guess I didn't test it out. The church in Laodicea is the last of the seven churches, and we've been on the loop going around um, the Asia Minor, what's modern-day Turkey, from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and now Laodicea. We go to the next slide. It shows the corridors of that time. And Laodicea is right there with that far circle to the right, and it's at a strategic place, is it not? It's at the strategic intersection of two roads, most all the commerce, everything traveled in that direction. And Laodicea was sort of a big deal. In fact, Laodicea was a very rich town. Laodicea had a lot going for it. It says this in Revelations 3.14, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, and the angel is a leadership. Laodicea today, though, does not exist. In the contemporary world, there's ruins there. But at one time, it was a place of great commerce. It was the place where, you know, you would have all the big malls. You would have, you know, you'd have the nice expensive car dealerships. That was Laodicea. Because it was happening. It was on the commerce road to all kinds of places throughout the known world at that time. Laodicea was known for its banking world, its finances. 
The big, tall skyscrapers. No, they didn't have the skyscrapers then, right, with bank names on them. But, but they had buildings, and it was known for their finance and their commerce. It was a wealthy place. In fact, when the earthquake hit there during the first century, and some of the other cities had to call upon Rome, or Rome stepped in to say, hey, we'll help you out. We'll relieve you for some taxes. Laodicea said, got this. We're good. We don't need anything from Rome. Now, that's telling you right there that this town was prosperous. Not only to have a banking and finance, though, it was also known for its textiles, its wool. In fact, there was a, a shiny black wool, almost like silk, that they created there because of the commerce, uh, because of the, the rural agricultural area and the, and the sheep that were able to be there. So they had these beautiful um, garments and they were able to make rags that were really well used. It was known in that area at the time, as a place, of, uh, a place of commerce and a place of being able to have textiles and clothing. And the third aspect that you would know in Laodicea for was that it had a medical school, and it was sort of some of the cutting-edge kind of people with being able to have modern medicine at that time. Now, sometimes we look back, we got this arrogant kind of thing today in our age, like, oh, people in, and, you know, in ancient times, the first century, they probably weren't very good at any of those things that we now have. Well, friends, they had a lot going for them, and they actually had an eye salve that was sort of a hot commodity in the area that brought healing um, abilities to eye issues, an eye salve, a lot of medical students, a lot of progressive research going on. So can you picture that and imagine that? Because see, when you see ruins like this, you think old, archaic, boring. Why are we having a history lesson? Well, friends, the same issues that plague the human beings today existed then. And the same God that is here to minister to us today, wherever we're at, was ministering to them. History sometimes, I say, repeats itself, right? Well, this is true. Because what we're going to see at the church of Laodicea is true of the church today. Now, last week I threw up a diagram. I chose not to do it again because it would confuse you. But when you walk through each of the seven letters in the churches in Revelation, they are literal churches that existed at that time. So we know that that's a direct way to interpret the word. They were also words written to churches in general through all times. But last week I mentioned that sometimes you can interpret each of the seven churches as different seasons of history. There was the church of Philadelphia era of great opportunity and missions going forward. And then there was the church Laodicea age, the lukewarm church age. Now, I don't give a whole lot of a credence that, that the letters were actually written for those seven historical seasons of life, but it's one way to look at it. But I can tell you this. We do live in a Laodicean church age. Now, we could also say, well, in other parts of the country, they are in other church ages of persecution or church ages of open door opportunities, and that is true. But what we're going to see is that Jesus was so intently interested in the churches thriving and Christians doing his kingdom work here on earth that he would move from place to place if certain churches were not on it and knocking it down. He'd say, I'm going to do what? I'm going to remove my lampstand from your midst. I'm going to remove my light from your midst. I'm going somewhere else. 
These ruins are in Turkey. All seven churches were in Turkey. Is there a thriving Christian kingdom movement population in Turkey today? Nada. Mostly Islamic. A lot of religious indifference. That which is once was a thriving place now is dead. And you think, wow, there's a lot of churches in America. We've been known for one nation under God. Things are going to continue to cruise. You don't know that. What if the Lord Jesus Christ tarries for another couple hundred years? Could we look back on ruins, maybe not like these, but go, whatever happened to that Christian movement in that nation that claimed the foundation as God? The lampstand, don't ever take it for granted. It can be removed. If we do not do what Jesus calls us to do as individuals and as a church, and in Laodicean age, the church is known as being lukewarm. That's a stadium there on the right. We saw the stadium in Ephesus. Ephesus was about 100 miles to the east, I mean to the west of Laodicea. Laodicea actually had two stadiums. How many of you watched the Rams game yesterday, ESPN? It's nice to have a hometown team. I know San Diego's sort of a team too, but... Since being here for two and a half years, I don't find a lot of Charger followers, so I'm anticipating that we can become some Rams followers here, all right? I come from Indianapolis. Indianapolis, we were all big time on the Colts, and uh, we follow the Colts. I'm still a Colts fan, but I was choosing yesterday to try to become a Rams fan. Except when I was watching the game, I thought we maybe should have drafted that uh, rookie from Dallas as the quarterback rather than the number one pick that we got. See, that's all insider language for those of you football. (laughs) The Coliseum was filled with fans yesterday cheering on a football team. Laodicea, they had big gatherings. They had theater productions. They had sporting kind of events. They had oratorical events. A lot of people, a lot of big action now in ruins. This letter has been one of the deepest personally convicting letters of Jesus in my personal life. And I'm not just talking about the seven letters in Revelation. I'm talking about the words of Jesus through all the Gospels and thereabouts. I want us to pray briefly. We're going to dive further into what this letter is about for us today. But we've got to dig out our ears. Lord Jesus, in our midst, we thank you that you speak. You speak sometimes in a quiet voice to our inner spirit. You speak through scripture. Sometimes you speak through the counsel of others. Lord, together in all that, through my words, through your scripture that you sent to this church in the first century. And Lord, through your still small voice of your inner spirit, we pray that you would speak to every person here, whether they're a longtime follower, an early seeker of understanding you, or somebody maybe that's waffling in between. Jesus, speak, and may we not only hear, but may we respond this morning to your words. 
Amen? Amen? Amen. That's important you know that word because here we go. Revelations 3.14 To the angel of the church and lay to see right, these are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness. The ruler of God's creation. Jesus is standing up and He's saying, Listen to me, for I am God. I am the creator of all of God's creation. It says the ruler of creation, but behind that is this whole understanding that He was the one who brought it about and the providence of it. I am the faithful one and I am true. All truth abides in me. I have remained faithful in spite of all the faithlessness of people throughout all the years. I am the faithful and the true. And then he says, these are the words of the Amen. And do you know what Amen means? Amen means so be it. It's verifiable. It's fact-oriented. It's, it's a value-tested kind of idea. That when you say Amen at the end of the prayer, you are saying, I agree with the vitality and the purpose and the substance of what was just said. So be it. You don't end a prayer with, eh, whatever. And whatever. No, the whatever word is sort of like a, a compromising, you know, a double step. Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Whatever. Don't use the word whatever at the end of your prayers. Use the word amen. And amen means I agree with that. So be it. When you're in a service such as this, sometimes, you know, if there's a pointed truth that's stated, and not necessarily because of me, but because of Scripture and the Word, your spirit sometimes wants to say, Amen! And what are you doing? You're not being some flaming charismatic, like freaking out weird. No! Your spirit is connected with the Spirit of God, and you're saying, yes, so be it! I agree with that! Let's try that. Amen? Amen! You can say a few amens. You know, this sort of keeps the Keeps the guy going up front, so don't hesitate to do that, all right? So the angel, the church in Laodicea, right? And here's Jesus in all of his strength and his glory and his godness and divinity. To the angel, church in Laodicea, right? These are the words of the Amen. These are the words of the one who is faithful. These are the words of the one who is true. And these are the words of the ruler of all of God's creation. Digging out your ears? You're getting it. You're getting it. Now this is striking. We have looked at all these other churches. And Jesus normally starts out. With Yeah, I, I, I sort of know what's happening here. But he starts out with a commendation. Jesus does not start out with words of way to go with this church. He starts out, this is who I am. I know your deeds. Remember the app we talked about? He has a church health app. And boom, it's just always right there. Jesus cares about every church. And every community that has the church of Jesus Christ in it, he cares that those churches are healthy and vibrant. And he's tracking it on his health church app. And 
He's up and down in some places and trying to give encouragement. He comes to them and says, I just pulled it up. I know your deeds. And this is what he says, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, historically, there's one way to do a traditional type of interpretation of this. And that is, all right, Jesus says you need to be fired up. Right? But if that's really what Jesus is saying, be fired up emotionally and excited about your faith and who he is, then why does he say that I would rather you either be one or the other? You can be hot and fired up, or you can be cold. Does Jesus really want you to be cold spiritually? No. He doesn't. Does he want you to be fired up and hot? Yes, he does. And there's nothing wrong with enthusiasm. In fact, uh, long ago, Green Bay Packer coach Vince Lombardi, he once said that either be enthusiastically fired up or you will be fired enthusiastically. (laughs) And I think those could have been words of Jesus. You need to be enthusiastically fired up Or he will remove the lampstand and he will fire you enthusiastically. All right? So I'm not saying that the whole concept, the traditional interpretation, you need to be hot and fired up for God and that kind of thing, is not embedded in there. It really is, but that's not the foremost kind of thinking if indeed he's comparing the hot and cold. Maybe you really do like cold iced tea more than hot tea. Or maybe you like cold coffee. I can't comprehend that. But more than hot coffee, right? What's he getting at here? Well, Jesus is, he's just classic. He hits them where they're at every time. And he knows this town. He knows this town. And this town, though it was rich in commerce and banking and in the textiles and the clothing and the medicinal aspects of life, this town had a huge issue. This town had no water. This town had two sister cities, Colossae and Hierapolis. Colossae, you know that from, we have a book called the Colossians, uh, the book to the Colossians, right? And so we study that book. We've studied it here in this church before. Well, Colossae existed, you know, a few miles away to the south. And Hierapolis was a sister city, and it was a few miles to the north. Now, in Colossae, they had mountain water. They had mountain water. In fact, I'm sure that the water supply in Colossae was quite refreshing. They probably sold bottles of water. Though I can't comprehend that either. I still can't believe I buy water these days. Now, on here it says, pure quality Arrowhead, 100% mountain spring water. You familiar with Arrowhead? All right. Is it down in the valley? No, it's up top. West coast, Arrowhead, 100% mountain spring water. They probably bottled it in Colossae. And their water was refreshing. 
Can you imagine being hot and thirsty and just, you know, being able to drink in some refreshing mountain, cold mountain water? Just put your head in the waterfall. Oh, it feels so good. Yeah. Not in Laodicea. They didn't have refreshing cold mountain water. Neither did Laodicea have hot water like the other sister city, Hierapolis. Hierapolis had hot springs. Settle down in the nice hot springs, Marietta hot springs kind of thing, right? Been here a while, right? Hot springs, water coming up from the earth. Nice little heated temperature there for the body and a lot of times medicinal purposes in it. Usually hot water has sulfur and some other kinds of things, some other kinds of chemicals in it. Well, the people in Hierapolis, they were sort of proud of their hot water. And it was known in the area because of its healing value. So Colossae had cold, fresh water, refreshing water, and Hierapolis had hot, healing water. Laodicea, one of the reasons it doesn't exist today is because they had no water supply and they would have to build aqueducts, and there's some tiles represented here, from a distance away to bring the water into their town. Now, if the water left Hierapolis as hot, boiling, nice medicinal kind, what do you think after it traveled a number of miles in that kind of scorching area and stuff? By the time it got to Laodicea, it was Lukewarm. It was only lukewarm. It was yucky. It was nasty. It smelled bad because of those chemicals and those kinds of things. And if you brought it from the other direction, from the mountains with the cold water and the heat, by the time it got there, it was lukewarm. I thought they're, oh, yeah, just okay. They had this problem going on, and isn't it incredible? I just, I have to smile sometimes with Jesus because Jesus is so spot on relevant. He's not irrelevant. In fact, he'd probably look at this Temecula Valley, and he'd sort of know things about the Temecula Valley. He'd probably say something about winery, I don't know, that kind of stuff, right? And he'd say something about maybe the Santa Ana winds that would come over, or something about the heat that sort of comes upon the desert area here sometimes. It was like yesterday. And so, Jesus, he's spot on, and he's telling them, I got a word for you. Dig out your ears. You wrestle with this whole lukewarm thing every week in your town. But it's not just the water issue that's lukewarm. You are lukewarm. I would rather you be hot like the waters from Hierapolis or cold like those from Colossae, but because you are lukewarm in the condition of your life, just look at you. I just spit you, spew you out of my mouth. Oh, wow. That's sort of a heavy word. You ever had seasons in your life when you've looked where your heart's at and you're lukewarm? You have just sort of accommodated to life to get on with getting on, to go along with others, and you... If you really examined your life, there's not a lot of refreshing aspect about it. You're not being very refreshing to other people, even your own family. Your life is not really a lot of healing touch to other people. I I know you've been in crisis. 
You've been in the pit yourself, and Jesus ministers to you when you're in your pit. You need to break free of some things, like that study the women are going to do. I, I understand that. But sometimes if we examine our lives, we're not refreshing to other people, and we're not of healing value to other people. We're just sort of lukewarm. And here's the reality. Jesus wants you to be enthusiastically fired up, but he's more interested that your life is refreshing and healing to those who you're around. And his indictment towards the church at Laodicea and the Laodicean church age was that this church, in the midst of a very prosperous, wealthy town, really had no redeeming value in being the body of Jesus for the people and a country that was in need. And he just simply put it straightforward. He's not going to horse around. He said, I'm just going to spit you out of my mouth. We move on to verse 17. He's not lighting, lightening up any. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, what do you catch about those five words? What's he doing? They, they had a sense of confidence about who they were as a town. Yeah, they didn't have a very good water supply, but look at all the commerce and their other things that were going on. The church probably was a fairly well-to-do church. Had some nice digs and some other kinds of things going on. Great staff, some cool programs. I don't know what was happening in the church in way to see it. And, and, and those are all great things to try to have. But he looks at him and says, you're wretched. You're wretched, you're, you're pitiful, you're, you're just a miserable kind of group of people. And then look what he does. The three things that I mentioned that they're sort of known for. Commerce. He says, you're not rich. You're really poor. Oh, you think you've got a great healing salve? You're medicinal? Operations, you're the ones that are blind. And you like your clothing? You're the ones that are naked. You ever had somebody confront you in life with truth issues? Someone where you go, oh, that's sort of heavy. I don't know if I like hearing that. Jesus is that way sometimes. And he says, wake up! I'm the Amen! You are wretched, you are pitiful, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. Thank you very much, Pastor Kerry. I knew it was going to be that encouraging day. Your son was spot on. You're just going to beat us up. Well, discontentment is the first step to progress sometimes, isn't it? And sometimes I think Jesus has to wake us up. He has to call us for what it is. And he examines with a spotlight on your heart and says, where are you at, Carrie? Where are you at, church? Where are you at, awakening? Do you really think that you're doing well? This is how I see you. Now, next week, we're going to talk about a letter of Jesus to the church at the awakening and great sort of vision day and baptisms and, and hanging time afterwards, that kind of thing. Looking forward to it. Don't miss it. Bring friends. It's going to be a great day. But... 
here at the church at Laodicea, we've got to dig out our ears and say, is there anything that Jesus is saying to this church that would be true of us as a church? Would it be true? And I think that there's many aspects of church life that go well in different seasons, and then there's other aspects that waver. I could ask you, where is this church at in the area of faith? Where's this church at in its area of prayer, believing prayer? Where's this church at in the area of believing that God can bring healing into people's lives today, emotionally and physically, spiritually? Where's this church at in its desire to reach and care for those who are less fortunate in life? Where's this church at as it relates to young kids, children, informative years, students in transformative years? Jesus knows us as a church. If you've got a word for the church that think God is speaking to you, you need to let me know this week. We're going to talk about Jesus' words to the church called the awakening next week. He counterbalances those spot-on words, and he says, I counsel you buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Boom, boom, boom. One, two, three. He just counteracts each of those things that were true at the church of Laodicea. And he says, come to me. Let, let you buy from me. I am the true gold. I have the true riches. There's a lot of rich churches and a lot of rich nations. And we live in a rich nation. And we are a rich church compared to churches around the world. Compared to people around the world. In that top 5% economically, all of us in this room, from people around the world, even if you don't make very much money, And Jesus says the richness doesn't have to do and how much is in your wallet or how much is in your bank account or how much is in your stock portfolio. Richness is found in me. Come to me for I am gold refined in fire and I will give to you. You can become truly rich in white clothes. White clothes meant righteousness and beauty and purity and transformed lives. Jesus says come and wear the garments I want to give you. And salve on your eyes so you can see and have wisdom and discernment. Where are you shopping at this week? Do we go to the things of the world? Or do we go to the things that are found in Christ alone? He alone has riches. He alone has the white clothes. He alone has the salve to keep us from being blind. And then he says in verse 19, And this is why it's not a beat you up kind of sermon. Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. You don't say that to someone you don't love. He says, I love you. I love you and I want you to turn and repent. That's why I say the tough words, rebuke you, to discipline you. But we need to turn and have an action towards Christ wherever we may be found at in our spiritual life, in our spiritual development. I want you to watch this four-minute video 
from Francis Chan. How many of you know who Francis Chan is? If you know who Francis Chan is, you're like, oh, get ready. <laughs> Francis Chan, pastor's up in Simi Valley. He large following and uh, young man. He's older now, I guess. Has several kids. But he's always been about walking the talk. He resigned from a large church up there. I think it was called Cornerstone. He sort of disappeared a few years ago for about a year. He went to Africa, actually, to just help with needy people. He came back. He's written a lot of books. They sell well. He doesn't really take royalties from his books. He lives a very um, simple, straightforward life. But he has a prophetic voice. He came back. He's up in San Francisco Bay Area now doing urban ministry. Decided he wanted to be a part of that jet set circuit that goes around a lot. That was all right, but God was calling him to continue to be faithful and true to things. And and in this four-minute clip, um, if this clip isn't for you, that's fine. This clip is for me because I'm someone who was enthusiastically fired up as a young person. But as life comes at you, you have a tendency to lose that refreshing ability, that healing ability, and you get myopic, just focused on your own world. Could it be true that some of the words to us as a church could be words like Francis Chan shares in this video clip? to the Western Church and the yeah. Western world. Okay. And then anything else that's burning in your heart. Okay. Okay. I'm pretty excited when I see the faith of some of the young people today that are just saying, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. There wasn't a lot of that when I grew up. Um, but what happened with those who did have that spark and that excitement, I saw how the church almost squashed them. Um, and I'm praying for this next generation, for the young people who are just saying, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything. And they're doing it. They're going overseas or they're you know, right where they're at in the inner cities or in their own suburbs just going, you know, I'm going to be radical. I'm going to follow Jesus completely. I want it all. I'm, I'm not about the games and, and about, okay, entertain me to death in, in the church. I want to follow Jesus and I want to experience him. And I guess my challenge to the church is, is for those that are maybe Maybe my age or those who are um, even further along, it's like, would you set the example for the young people? Because what happened um, in my generation when we were younger, uh, there were those who were radical, but there weren't people. Once they got married, everything changed. Once they had kids, everything changed. And I'm just praying, oh God, could I be an example of someone who's married and has kids and is still thinking kingdom first? Like saying, you know, like 1 Corinthians 7, those who are married should live as though they're not. Uh, there's a sense in which this mission is bigger and can we still live and take risks and still surrender our lives and, and say, you know what, it's me, my wife, my family, I want to demonstrate to them, you know what, look, when we follow Christ, yeah, that was a little scary, yeah, that might have been a little dangerous, yeah, that was not the, you know, 
logical move to make, but God did call us that direction, and let's head that way, and I want my kids to experience what it, what it looks like when we live by faith, but not only that, I want to be an example to the young people to say, you know what, your, your mission with the Lord doesn't end when you get married, and suddenly, oh, well, you're dating, so focus on each other, and oh, it's your first year of marriage, you know, just focus on each other, and oh, you just had a kid, you know what, then then take time for that, that little kid, and until he goes to school, then you'll be free. But then once they're in school, it's like, oh, they're teenagers now. Just collect that family together and worry about yourselves. But then you're, you're teaching them this mentality, again, is not about going out in the harvest and being a worker. It's about let's protect our family now. Now let's keep us safe. Let's find some gated community and, you know, and keep them all in our house, away from all the bad people. And that's, <laughs> there's no excuse for that. That is not what, you you can't find that in this book. It's about living for him, and you're missing out. Not only are you missing out on life, but your children are missing out on life when you do that. That's why so many of the kids, when they turn 18, they just ditch God altogether because they didn't see anything real in your life. They, they didn't see that adventure, and you didn't put yourself in positions where God had to come through, and then he comes through, and your whole family was going, wow, that was amazing. I am never going to leave that God. No, you just created a little bubble for yourself where how was God even going to operate in, in that? And I don't know. I, I don't want to be negative. I don't want to sound negative. I'm just, I just get sad because I go, not only are you missing out on life, but we are turning away our children by the droves because our lives are not the adventure that they see in Scripture. And they are not experiencing the Holy Spirit. They're experiencing like a Christian version of the American dream that's watered down, and we just make excuses for really idolizing our families um, rather than really putting Christ in the mission first. Amen. It's so easy to fade into lukewarmness and not to stay on the fresh hot edge of healing and transforming other people's lives or on the refreshing edge. I would either that you are hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will spew you. I will spit you out of my mouth. So Jesus says to those whom I love, though, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And then we have probably one of the more famous verses in all of Scripture. Here I stand. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The door knocking. I would hear this many times in my life. Someone standing at the door knocking. And who is it? Jesus. He's knocking on the door of our heart. Now you may associate that verse with a picture such as one of these. An artist by the name of Holman did the drawing in the middle first, the painting. The light of the world, Jesus holding the lamp, knocking on a door of a, a chalet. 
Other versions of that, one on the left, one on the right. I remember the one on the right. How many of you remember the one on the right? Oh, yeah, I'm like, well, Jesus got pretty good-looking skin. Nice complexion. Jesus standing at the door knocking. And maybe it was in an old Sunday school that you grew up in, but it referenced Jesus at your heart knocking. And he wants to know if you will open the door and let him come in. Now, each of those paintings, look at the door. What's unique about the door? It's closed. What else is unique about the door? There's no door handle on the outside. The artist rendering intentional. Because Jesus does not intrude into your heart and life if you choose to go about your own merry way, indifferent to him, or maybe steadfast in your lukewarmness. He stands at the door and he knocks and he says, Repent. I rebuke and discipline you because I love you. But I will stand at the door of your heart time and time again, knocking to see, will you turn the handle on the inside and open up the door for me to come in? Into your heart, into your heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. All little kinds of songs I remember, different seasons of life. But I tell you what, this image, not just the picture, but the image of Jesus in the Laodicean church, knocking, asking the church to let him back in. He's locked out of his church. Because the church has gone on its merry way to just go along with getting along consumed with the things that are around them. Look at us, all that we have. But at the heart, they've lost their ability to bring healing and transformation and refreshment to people. And he says, I will stand here and knock, church, until you open the door to let me in. And I say, week in and week out, Lord Jesus, may that be true of us as a church. But for it to be true of us as a church, it has to be true of us as individuals. Is Jesus knocking at your door? Is Jesus wanting to come back in because somehow he's been left out? And this isn't referring to salvation and losing your salvation this time. It has to do with his prominence in your life. Those of us who he would describe as wretched and pitiful, poor, blind and naked. He says, I stand and knock. Will you let me come back in? I'm going to invite the band to come up and we're going to have a song of reflection. It's actually a version of a hymn that many of you will know. And I believe here this morning as we prayed up front, Lord, we want to listen to you, that Jesus is speaking to some of you as he has spoken to me in preparations this week saying, I want you to freshly open the door of your life to me. Will you do that? And so as we sing this hymn, I'm going to give you an invitation. Actually, I'm going to give a couple steps or aspects of invitation. If you have never chosen in your life to open the door to let Jesus come in, to be the forgiver of your sins, to be the leader of your life, to be the one who you choose to follow as he enables you, I want to encourage you that today... Jesus is knocking. 
It doesn't matter what your background is, how deep you've fallen into sin or indifference. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home or a non-Christian home. Jesus stands at the door of your heart today, and he wants to know, will you open your heart to him? And you can do that here this morning. If you've never done it before, and invite Christ to come into your life. You too can become a Christ follower. He can change you. He can redeem you. He can give you gold that's refined in fire. He can give you white robes of richness and beauty and purity and hope. And he can give you healing so that you can see. Will you open your door to him if you've never asked Jesus into your heart before? And the second is for those of us maybe that have fallen in that category of lukewarmness. I mean, hey, we mentioned it up front. We're sort of closing out the summer, heading into the fall. I sort of still operate with semesters in my mind, gearing up for another good ministry season. But friends, as we head into the fall, are you going to just head back into schedules and distractions? Or are you going to head into a fall where God uses your life? to bring refreshment and redemption and healing to people around you. Beginning in your home, then with your friends. He wants to use your life and he wants to use us as a church. So the first invitation, have you ever invited Jesus into your heart? The second is if somehow through the events of life, the lukewarmness that comes from the journey of the waters you need him to come back in and bring that enthusiasm. Listen to these words. You can sing these words. Jesus, he doesn't give you these chances all the time. He closes, he says, To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And then, as with every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that doesn't mean just hearing the words I've spoken. Hearing it means responding. Will you surrender all to Jesus? After we sing this through, we're not going to have the offering now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to stand as individuals if you're one who wants to open the door of your heart to Jesus. And I want to pray for you. Let's sing this together.